God be with you. Dave, can I come down a little bit, please? Everyone is still doing all right? I feel so far away from you. I don't like it. Anyways, shall we? So you may not know this, uh, but to pay my way through seminary, um, I worked at this bar in Toronto. And I secretly think the only reason I got the job was because I was studying to be a United Church minister. See, the bar was called The Saint. And it was actually named after a United Church that had burnt down on the property. And the church was nicknamed The Saint of Ossington because of all the work it had done during the Depression to feed the people in their neighborhood. And the bar wanted to do a nod to that as it brought people together to feed them and create community. And so one night I was working and I was talking with a regular. Um, he knew I was going to be a minister. And so one time he kind of pulled me aside and he said, you know, I, I've been wanting to ask this for a really long time. But like, why? Like, what is it about Jesus that makes you want to go and do this? And he wasn't being mean. He wasn't being condescending. He, he was being just curious. He, he genuinely wanted to know. And I can't remember for the life of me what I told him. But I do remember his question, because it is such a good question. Why Jesus? I mean, out of all the ways to live out there, out of all the paths that lead us deeper into life and towards the divine, out of everything that we could be doing with our time, our money, and our energy, why Jesus? Why do this? Anyone ever wonder that before? It's okay to admit it. Even Jesus was like, why am I doing this? There's no shame in that. And we should ask it. It's a really healthy practice to get into, actually. And not so much because we need an answer to it, in the it's going to be in the final exam kind of way, but because asking it reminds us just why we do this, why this matters. And in doing that, it helps refocus us, realign us, and it helps us find the energy to keep on going, exploring, and moving deeper and deeper and deeper into that kind of life that Jesus opens up for us. And so this morning being a community that isn't afraid of asking big questions, knowing that doubt and curiosity are actually holy, we're going to ask that question. We're going to ask, why Jesus? And so the plan to help us get there, we're going to talk about tomato sauce and the most important person you've never heard of. It, it will connect. Uh, we're going to hear a story in the Bible and then three answers to our question. And hopefully through all of that, we can leave here feeling a bit more excited and energized, or at the very least with more questions than we came in with, which really are just as good. Sound good? Are you with me? I can hear you now. I like it. Thank you. So before we jump into it, let's take a moment to uh, be here. Let's take a moment to center ourselves, and let's start with a prayer. And so would you pray with me, please? And so, Spirit, here we are. People who are all here for different reasons. 
uh, people who are here to hear from you. And so I ask that you speak to us. Whether it's through these words or through your own, may you give us a good and hope-filled and challenging word to chew on. And so God, I ask that you do your thing. Amen. So let's say that you go to the grocery store after church and you head to the pasta aisle. Any guesses on how many different tomato sauces that you'll find there? You'll find 36. On average, at your big kind of box grocery store, you'll find 36 different varieties. You'll find traditional, you'll find chunky, there's extra chunky, there's garden, there's spicy, and then all different kinds of offshoots of those. 36 different choices of what you can bring home for dinner. Now let's rewind 30 plus years ago and go back to the 70s. How many guesses on how many tomato sauces you would find then? We've regressed. Yeah. You'll find one. You'll find plain. One choice of what to bring home for dinner. So what happened? How did we go from one to 36? The answer is the most important person you've never heard of. His name is Howard Moskowitz. And Howard, he was an American psychophysicist. No idea what that is. Has something to do with patterns. And you can make the case, as Malcolm Gladwell does, that he has done more to make people happy than anybody else in the past 30 years. And he's done that through his revolutionary idea that when it comes to human preferences, when it comes to things like taste, there are no universals. One thing simply won't work for everybody. Now to us, this may seem like a pretty stock idea, but in the 70s, this was a revolutionary idea. Especially when it came to things like tomato sauce. Because when it came to tomato sauce, the dominant idea was that there was such a thing as a perfect sauce that everyone could enjoy. And companies like Ragu and Prego, they built their entire companies around this idea. They each had their one sauce that they each thought was perfect and that everyone would like, and they went head-to-head -head for everybody's money. And now in the 70s and the 80s, it was widely held belief that Prego had the better product. But despite this, their sales were slumping. And so they hired Howard to tell them how to fix it. And this is what Howard told them. There's no such thing as a perfect tomato sauce, just perfect tomato sauces. There's no such thing as a perfect tomato sauce, just perfect tomato sauces. But Prego, it blew their mind. They did not believe him. They're like, Dude, no perfect sauce. That's bananas. I mean, look, millions of people buy our sauce. And then Howard's response shows you how brilliant he is. He told them that doesn't mean they like it. That doesn't mean they like it. So Howard went to work, 
and he made 45 different kinds of tomato sauce, each one with a slightly different recipe, and he got thousands and thousands of people to eat them and rate what they liked about them. And this is why he's so brilliant and revolutionary. Instead of giving Prego the sauce that most people liked, instead of being like, oh, just make this one and more people will buy it, Howard looked at all the data and he clustered it based on patterns that he saw. And what he saw was that people don't universally like one kind of sauce. They actually like three kinds of sauces. They like plain, spicy, and chunky. When it comes to tomato sauce, there isn't a perfect sauce. There's just perfect sauces. Now again, Prego's mind was blown, because despite what it looked like, that meant that one-third of Americans preferred chunky over plain. And so they immediately started making it, and in 10 years they made $600 million off of chunky sauce alone. 600 million bucks off of Chunky. And so seeing that there was so much money to be made here, every other company hired Howard, and soon there were four different kinds of everything. Mustard, pickles, olive oil, vinegars, each one of them moving towards people's specific tastes instead of expecting them to move towards them. Now Howard Moskowitz is the most important person you never heard of but he completely revolutionized not only how we think about human choice and preference, but also how we shop, what our grocery stores look like, and how we're marketed too. Why are there 36 kinds of tomato sauce? Because Howard Moskowitz completely changed the game. And so what does all of that, what does tomato sauce have to do with Jesus? Everything. There's a story in the Bible. You can find it in the Gospel according to Luke. And the story takes place on the Sabbath. And that's the holy day of the week where everyone will go to their synagogue or their temple to rest, to practice delight, and to connect with God's presence. A lot like what we're doing here. And as the story begins, people are gathering to do that. And all kinds of people are showing up for worship. There's the old and the, and the young, the certain and the curious, the rich and the poor, the elite and the average, the learners and the scholars. It's a packed place. And everyone is up at front where the action is, right where they need to be. But there, way, way in the back, past the watered-down coffee, past all the furniture they don't know what to do with because someone donated it, Back in this dark and dusty corner is a woman. Now we know nothing about this woman other than the fact that she is bent over and crooked with pain. We don't know what that means. Maybe it's physical, maybe it's mental, maybe it's emotional, spiritual, maybe it's all of those things. It doesn't really matter. But what matters is that she's been this way for 18 years. 18 years of pain, 18 years of despair, 18 years of being defined by her affliction, of being known simply as the bent-over woman. Now, nobody else sees her, but she's there. She's listening to Jesus teach. And as he teaches, she can feel the room begin to hum with reverence. 
She senses the air being rearranged. When suddenly she knows that Jesus has stopped talking. And she looks up, and he's no longer at the front where everybody else is. But instead, he's right in front of her. He's looking right at her. He's touching her shoulders. And saying just loud enough for everybody else to hear, he says, woman, you are free. And suddenly she feels the past 18 years wash off of her. She feels something inside her release. She's able to straighten up and stand up tall. And her whole life and world changes. She's no longer the bent over woman. And we're told how she began to give, she began to give thanks to God for that miracle. But the religious leaders watching all this, they begin to freak out. They lose their minds. They're yelling at people to settle down. They're telling the woman to be quiet, to go back to the corner. Saying that this can't be from God because clearly that's not how God works. Today is a Sabbath and nobody works on the Sabbath. It's in the rules. Even God doesn't work on the Sabbath. This can't be from God. But Jesus not having any of it. He gets angry at the leaders saying, really? That's what you think God is like? That's how you think this works? You frauds. If your cow or donkey needs to get water on the Sabbath, wouldn't you untie it and lead it to water? If God's okay with that, don't you think God would much rather I untie this woman on the Sabbath and lead her to new life? And then pointing at the woman, he said, this is the kind of God that we have. That's how it works. And then the best part of the whole story. And watching all of this go down, we're told how all the people were delighted and began to cheer. Just like Howard Moskowitz, and just like tomato sauce, Jesus is doing something incredibly huge here. Something that shows why he matters and why we do this. He's completely changing the game. He's completely flipping upside down, not only how we think about God, but how we think about faith and how we think about what it means to be human. And I think within this story, there are three different places that we can go, three different ways we can see how he does change everything. Are you still with me? So first, Jesus changes the game by changing how we think about movement. One of the habits that you can get into whenever you read these Bible stories, or any story for that matter, um, is pay attention to the movement in the story. Because more often than not, within the movement is a whole lot of meaning. And so what's the movement in this story? What's the dominant movement? Jesus moves towards the woman. He goes from the front all the way to the back. He goes from where everyone else is, where it's nice and comfortable, where everyone has it all together, where you're supposed to be, the center of it all. And he moves to the back, away from them towards that woman. And not just any woman, but a broken woman, a bent over, a crooked woman. Someone who would be considered by everyone else to be sinful, to be avoided. Someone who is not even worth having a name. And that scandalous movement, that's a big deal. That matters. 
And it matters because not only does it tell us that we have a God who moves towards us, that the universe, that source, that spirit is bent towards relationship and connection, it also, and perhaps even more importantly, it reminds us of what our movement needs to look like. Because so often, we want to live our lives up front, don't we? We want to be in the center of everything. We want to be where everyone else is, where it's respectable and nice, where it's comfortable. That's where we want to call home, right there in the center. And so we buy homes in the suburbs. We go to nice restaurants. We play in the nice parks. That's where we go and find and have our lives. But what the movement of Jesus shows us here is that to find and have our lives, to find that sense of home and place, it can't be done from the center. But it takes a movement towards the margins. To find and have our home, it means looking for who's been kicked out, who has been pushed aside, who is missing. And then instead of waiting for them to come to us, instead of doing the work of moving them here, we do the work of moving towards them, of being in relationship with them, of being at home with them. Jesus matters because he redefines what our world should look like by redefining what we should be calling home. He matters because he tells us that we can never be at home We should never feel comfortable. We should never feel safe. We should never feel nice until we have moved to make sure that everyone who's been kicked out, everyone who's been pushed aside, feels like they belong. So some questions for you. Something to take home for the week. Who do you need to move towards? Who's missing from your circle? Who's not allowed in the center? And how can you learn to better see those who have been kicked out? Second thing. Jesus matters because he completely changes how we think about faith. What we see going on in this story is actually a pretty common understanding of what people think faith is, even today. Faith, the story says, is about believing certain things or doing certain things. To be faithful is to follow the rules. It's to believe these particular things. It's to only do these kinds of songs in church. Do that, you're faithful. Check, all is well. And I'm sure a lot of us have been taught that kind of faith in different ways. But what we see Jesus doing here is offering a totally different understanding of what faith looks like and how faith can be practiced. Faith, Jesus is saying, isn't obedience. Faith, rather, as the great Rabbi Ward Lev puts it, faith is dialogue. Because if God is a God who moves and speaks and touches then faith can't be fixed. Because once it's fixed, what happens to it? It gets closed off. 
gets boxed in. It shuts off. And the problem with that is it stops us from seeing, hearing, and feeling the one thing that faith is meant to help us see, hear, and feel. That kind of faith takes us out of life, not in it. And what Jesus is doing here is changing the game by offering this really ancient, beautiful understanding of what faith actually is. It's openness. It's listening. It's dialogue. It's response. Faith is this ever-widening posture of openness to the movements of the divine around us. So some more questions for you. Is your faith open? What gets in the way of you having that ever-widening posture? How can you make your faith more of a dialogue? So put those in your pocket. Take them home as well. And finally, the third thing. Too often, like way, way too often, just like in this story, God is used to threaten hurt, and control people. If you don't do this or that, or if you don't believe this or that, well then, God's not going to like it and sucks to be you. The last thing you want to do is make God angry, so get in line. And so not wanting to risk that, we do this or that, don't we? We hide who we are, we say things that we don't really believe, we put up with abuse, we stay in unhealthy churches, we remain in toxic relationships. Because if that's what God wants, well, who's to argue with God? Anyone ever feel that way before? Yeah, I'm sure we all have. In some way, we've all been given that idea of God. And certainly, as we head into Pride Week, I can go introduce you to millions of people who know exactly what that's like. In some way, we all feel like that woman who because of what she has been told about God, she's bent over, she's crooked, she's all tied up under the weight of what people have told her that God wants and what God thinks of her. So is it any wonder she's in the back corner? She's hiding, hiding from the people, hiding from God, scared of what God might do to her. But here's the thing. This is why Jesus matters. Here's the liberating truth about God that Jesus gives us. If it doesn't lead you into life, if it doesn't free or release you, if it doesn't liberate and make new, if it doesn't taste, feel, or smell like love, it is not from God. Jesus matters because he gives us this whole new barometer to measure what is holy and of God. He matters because he reminds us that the way of the universe is love. And he freaks out at the religious leaders, calling them frauds, because they're not selling God, they're selling garbage. They've got it all wrong. This is why when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says, actually, you know what? There's one unforgivable sin, and that's blaspheming the Spirit. That's to use God's name in vain, which isn't to swear, but that's to say, God wants this. God wants you to do this. God thinks you should be like this, when that's not true at all. 
the unforgivable sin according to Jesus is to say God is like something that God is not. It's that big a deal. So knowing that Jesus redefines all of that, some questions for you. What lies have you been told about God? What beliefs, what narratives and labels do you need to be liberated from? And let's flip that around. What beliefs, narratives, and labels can you help others be liberated from? How can we as a community of faith better represent who God really is? So why does Jesus matter? Why do we do this? Why are we here this morning? Because when it comes to being human, when it comes to connecting with God, Jesus completely changes the game. Showing us where we can find our homes, how we can live a life of faith, and showing us that God is a God of extravagant and indiscriminate love. It changes everything, doesn't it? Is that any one of the people were delighted and they cheered when Jesus came into the room? Amen. Oh,